Amen. Please remain standing as you hear the word of our God. We're back in the book of John as we continue on. I'll be reading chapter 5, verses 16 through 30. These are the words of God. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Thus the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing. Heavenly Father, with your powerful word before us, let your spirit have his way in our minds and hearts. Turn us toward you and your ways. Let us see the glory of Jesus Christ in this passage and the unity of the Father and the Son. And let eternal life be declared and given in the preaching. For the glory of your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, so we're returning to the Gospel of John. You might recall, as I went through the prologue, the very first 18 verses of chapter 1, that I, I said to you that all of the themes, so many of the themes of, of John's Gospel are kind of packed together in a topical way um, in that prologue. In fact, you could go back and read the prologue and think of it a little bit like a table of contents. Um, it, it's, not, it's not pointing you to particularly in the, uh, in the direct order that all things are going to come. But all of the topics that are brought up so quickly in the first 18 verses are the important things about Jesus Christ that John wants to make clear in his gospel. In fact, as we go through this, I was thinking about this, as we go through the gospel, week after week, we get into this, it might be great for you to just review each week yourself to go through just the, the, the prologue, the first 18 verses of, 
of, of John chapter 1 and remind yourself of what John is unpacking. These things, there, there's just layers and layers in the gospel of John. Um, it, as I said before, it can be read straight through and there's so much to be, to be gleaned just from a straightforward reading of the gospel of John. Not to say, it's not to say it's too complicated. And yet it's profound and deep. And we come to a, a very unique portion of the scripture of, this, of the gospel here in which Jesus is going to declare and defend his divinity and his sonship. What I mean by that is, is in this passage is a declaration of Jesus Christ being God. Very clearly, he's just, he is going to declare himself um, in, the, in the eyes and the minds of the Jews that he is God. He and the Father are one. They're the same. They're of the same substance, the same existence. Not only that, he's going to defend it. He's going to show why this is true. And he's also going to reveal the, the relationship that he has to the Father a relationship as a son to a father and what that means, how that plays itself out. And, and a careful study of this shows us that, that God, God the Father and God the Son are equal, equal in their essence, and yet there is, a, yet there is an economy, a, a way of living where the Son, uh, the way the Son relates to a father is in a way of um, submitting to the Father and to his will, a glad submission. And this all comes out uh, in this passage. And so, and that's not just a that's not just a bunch of facts. But as you see it, you're going to see an invitation to enjoy the glory, and enter into the glory, and see the glory as the glory of this. It, it works itself out like this: you have life, you have life in the Lord Jesus Christ, because Jesus has life in Himself, just as the Father has life in Himself. See if we can see this here. Now, um, the way this is laid out, there's a formal structure here and a legal charge that, it, that can be really seen in the original languages. Some wonder if this is an address before the assembled Sanhedrin. Oftentimes in the Gospel of John, you'll see that the Jews were angry or the Jews sought to kill Jesus or the Jews as though every single last Jew was trying to kill Jesus. But if you look carefully, what you'll oftentimes note is actually it's the Jewish authorities most likely the Sanhedrin, that the, 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 the uh, religious council and religious um, kind of religious policemen of the day that, that are after Jesus. And you're going to see in this passage why they are so anger, angered by him. In this passage, our Lord makes clear his unity and his submission to the Father, his divine commission and authority from the Father, and the proofs of his messiahship. So as we go through this, I want you to consider. I want you to consider the words of the one who is the word of God, the one whose voice brings life to the dead, and the one at whose name every knee shall bow. It's all here in these verses. We pick up in verse 16, where um, we're coming, at, it's really a kind of transition couple of verses between 16 and 18. Chapter 5 began with the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, you might recall, which as it turns out happened on the Sabbath. Look again with me at verses 8 through 10 there. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. That's what he said to this man who was a paralytic. And immediately this man, the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him, who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. And so that's the, that's the, uh, um, the setting of, of our passage then as well right now. The paralytic's mat, you see, was a sign of victory over suffering and death. 
He gets up on the Sabbath and he picks up his mat and carries his mat with him. He has been released. He is enjoying Sabbath celebration. He is enjoying Sabbath rest as never before. Believe me, it was no work for that man at all to pick up his mat and walk. It was nothing but joy. It was nothing but relief. It was nothing but Sabbath celebration. And yet, for this very reason, the Jews, again, probably the Sanhedrin, the religious ruling court, the police, harassed Jesus. And it says in verse 16, they even sought to kill him. This may have not been the first time to just kind of think about this. It's not like this was probably the first time that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. It's the only time that John records. But the other Gospels record multiple times when Jesus heals on the Sabbath and gets himself or his people, into, uh, his people or the person that he healed in trouble. Uh, one time they're, they're going through the grain, they're, go, they're walking through the grain field and they're, they're picking the grain, that's ripened grain, and breaking it up in their hands and eating, getting the husk out and eating the grain. That's work. They're going to get in trouble from the Jewish authorities for threshing wheat on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, you guys don't get it. It's in the Greek that way. You guys don't get it. Um, the, the, the Sabbath was, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he goes on to talk about how even David went and took from the showbread, which, which only the priests could eat. But in, at a particular time, in a particular place, for a particular reason, it was no breaking of any law for David to take the showbread and give it to his people. So uh, th there's this misunderstanding of how to apply these laws that go all the way back to the Old Testament, but have really been codified by the Pharisees, particularly at the time of Jesus, where there's this nitpicky keeping of the law in such a way that, that Jesus has no time for at all, and will openly and brazenly break the, their, their code just to make a point. In fact, um, um, Jesus um, in this incident, doesn't, doesn't stop and say, okay, well, everybody settle down here. Let me help you understand. Instead, Jesus turns up the heat. He, he makes it even worse. He makes them even more mad. Um, Jesus sees this controversy as a teaching moment and dives right in. He answers to them that the Father, or rather my Father, look at verse 17, my Father has always been working, and so had he. Verse 17, Jesus answered them, my Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Now, that, that might seem obscure to you. Um, he, he says that. How, how do you receive that? Look at how they receive it. The next, verse 15, uh, I'm sorry, verse um, uh, 18. Therefore the Jews, because he just said this, Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So it was very clear to the Jewish authorities what Jesus was claiming. Although it doesn't seem immediately clear to us, we can see by their response and, and by, by what John tells us that they see Jesus saying, and Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, no, that's not what I meant at all. No, he just leans into it now in, in this next discourse. Jesus was claiming that God was his father and that he was equal with God. He does the same things that God the Father does, and um, he calls him my father. And so they, they seek to kill him all the more. Why would they seek to kill him? Not just because they're angry, but because this would be breaking blasphemy laws. He'd be claiming to be God. 
And the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin, uh, one of the things they had to do, especially in, in, uh, in the first century, quite a bit, was to put down false messiahs. False messiahs were rising up all over the place during this time, especially during this time of tumult uh, against, the, the, uh, against Rome, against the Roman Empire. And so there'd be these false messiahs, these false Christs, Jesus will talk about them to watch out for them, these false Christs that are rising up. And the Sanhedrin has been in the business of putting them down. And here's another one. Here's another one who's claiming to basically be God. We need to put him down. He is breaking God's blasphemy laws and he's worthy of death. But they're probably also angry because Jesus is continuing to grow a greater and greater following. Multitudes are now gathering around to hear him and to hear his, hear his speech. They need to put him down. They need to put him down because he calls the father, my father. And he says that he does the same work that the father does. The father is not breaking the Sabbath law, um, in, and, and, and Jesus is therefore not breaking the Sabbath law either. Now, just this idea of my father for a moment. Rarely in the Old Testament is God called father at all. Uh, you can find really two passages, one in Isaiah 63 and one in Isaiah 64, where God is referred to directly as father. But rabbinic law taught that God was a father to the Jewish nation. That was understood, that, that, that Israel, or that God was a father to the Jewish nation, much like we might call George Washington the father of our nation. Covenantally, God was our father. They referred to him as our father. But Jesus was claiming something else. Jesus said he was my father. Now, he said this once before, um, earlier in John, when he talked about um, destroy this temple, and he talked about my father. He refers to my father. But this is this, now the second time where he, he not only says that, um, that his father is going to do something, but he says, I do the same things that my father does. And so the son works in the same way that the father does. What is he doing? He's upholding all things by the power of his word, as it says in Hebrews 1.3. The Father and the Son both uphold all things by the power of their word. You see, God didn't create the universe like we think, like a theist thinks, or I'm sorry, a deist thinks, someone, someone who just um, creates the world like they might make a clock, wind it up and step away, and now the clock just moves. We're told throughout Scripture to understand that God brought forth the creation by the power of his spoken word, and the power of his spoken word resounds, continues to work. He is working, he is working, upholding all things by the power of that word. If God, um, if God ceases to speak, we cease to exist. We exist because the word of God speaks us into and sustains us in our Existence. So if God did not actively sustain us and hold all things together, we would cease to be. And now Jesus is going to turn and give this um, explanation of what he meant, that he does what the Father does, that he and the Father are one, that he can call the Father my Father. And he does so in verses 19 through 30. It is laid out in a, uh, in, in a very careful structure. Um, I have on the back of your bulletin, you can look at it if you'd like to, just, I just want you to notice this, um, and you might find it interesting to go back later and kind of look this over. This is all laid out, 19 through 30, in what's called a chias, or chiastic structure. A chiasm is an ancient and especially a Hebraic way of organizing an argument. Where, whereas we might organize, you know, point, thesis, 
point one, point one A, illustration, point two, point two A, point two B. A Hebrew model of, of laying out of argument has at the top um, an idea A that will be matched to the final idea A prime at the bottom. And then you'll see it go in, in successive order, B and B prime, C and C prime, to a middle section. It's called a chiasm because of the Greek letter chi. So it's like it's following um, half of an X. And you can see that there in the passage. And what happens is the argument kind of, uh, kind of moves towards the center. And at the center is the center of the central point of the argument. As it comes back out, it continues to um, organize or defend that argument by, again, referring back oftentimes to the points that were made beforehand. You can see this, for instance, and I want to just show this to you because it's, it's really helpful. Um, I don't know if you notice this, but do you ever notice when you're reading through John and some of the long discourses, you, 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 like, you know, kind of stop halfway through and you go, what is he saying? What does he mean by this? Well, this chiastic structure is really helpful to see. So, for instance, in, in verse 19, notice that it says, I've underlined here, that the son can do nothing of himself, he's arguing. And then, down at the bottom, verse 30, he says, again, I, can do, I myself can do nothing, and he'll make an application of that. Uh, in the next verses, in verse 20, he will talk about um, the things that he does, and he says, watch out, though, because I, I'm going to do greater works that you will marvel over. In verse uh, 28, he'll also say, now don't marvel over the things I've just told you I'm going to done, because I'm going to do even greater things, he says, in that phrase, do not marvel. In verse 21, he talks about what the Son has been given. The Son, uh, the, the son gives life to whom he will, because the Father, um, because the Father is, I'm sorry, he gives life like the Father, and the Father has committed him the ability to judge. He's given all judgment to the Son. In verse 26, we also see that he has granted the son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment. And then finally in the middle, we have this, these, these phrases, those who hear my word or those who hear the voice of the son of God as, as the big emphasis. That's going to be in the center. Okay? So if that's helpful, then, then use it. If not, set it aside. But there's, there's how the argument goes. That's what's happening. So in the very beginning, what he's doing is, is he wants to make the point of how the Father and the Son are alike, verses 19 through 23. Jesus begins by addressing, by taking a vow. Um, when it says in the scriptures there, most assuredly, or you might have in a, in a different translation, something like truly, truly, in the Greek, the word is amen, amen. And when someone says amen, amen, he says he is taking a vow. He is, he is, this is the kind of thing you would say in court. Amen, amen. I'm making a vow that what I'm about to say is not only important, but true, and I speak it before God. Jesus is using this kind of language. Amen, amen, he says. And then, and he'll do so twice more. Notice in the very middle there, in 24 and 25, he will, he will begin both of those statements with this statement of, of, of taking a vow. And what he says here in verse 19 is that the son does whatever the father does, and, they, and he does so because they are in perfect union. Verse 19, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. And while the son is fully God, equal to the father, he is eternally begotten of the father. And so he could do nothing of himself. He is, he is, he is eternally coming forth from the father. And so though co-eternal and co-divine, the son is functionally subordinate to the father. 
that, this is why the, the son only does the same thing that the father does. Now, someone might argue that it, it sounds like Jesus is being constrained in some way, but that's not the point. The point is not that Jesus is constrained in any way. He is co-eternal. He is co-divine. He is fully and completely God, but he is fully and completely God having been eternally, eternally begotten, proceeding from the Father. The Father, God, think of it this way. Um, uh, Athanasius made this point. The Father has always been the Father. But the only way the Father could eternally be the Father, if eternally there was a Son. You're not a Father until you have a Son. Eternally the Father was a Father, because eternally the Father has, has brought forth the Son. The Son is always, in that sense, eternally begotten of the Father. And they are one. And, and this, this Son does just as the Father does because of their great and glorious unity. There's no personal inferiority here to the Father. Rather, Jesus says, in, um, in, if, drop down to verse 30, where he says this, I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus says, I don't want to seek a different will. Uh, I am the will of the Father. I, I want to seek the will of the Father. That's my, ch that's my choice. I'm not constrained in a way that's keeping me from doing what I would prefer. I am doing the Father's will. So, um, the Word of God loves to be the Word of God. The lo loves to be the Word which God desires and sends. You can think of it this way. Jesus is not simply the one or another one, a prophet. He's not just simply a prophet, one, bringing the message of God. He's, he's not just, he is a prophet. He is the great prophet, bringing the word of God. But he's not just simply one who is bringing the message of God. Jesus is the message of God. He is the word of God. This is very unique. This, is, this places Jesus in a unique place. And he's making this claim right before the Sanhedrin. You think you're a prophet or something, Jesus? Actually, Jesus would say, I'm more than a prophet. <laughs> I'm the very message of God. I, I, am, I am bringing forth, I am doing exactly what the Father does because the Father and I, says verse 20, the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. So, the Son delights to do what the Father is doing. Verse 19b, like sustaining, healing, and saving on the Sabbath, just like the Father. And the Father loves the Son and so shows him that all that he does, verse 20. Jesus then alludes to even greater things that he will do that the Father will show him. These first two reasons then display the unity of the Father and Son. So Jesus has said, um, uh, my Father has been working until I have been working. And then he gives these, he says, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father doing for the two reasons, he says, brings forth the unity that is between the father and the son. The next two reasons that he gives in verse 21 and 22 display the power and authority granted to the son by the father, namely to give life in verse 21 and to judge in verse 22. And, and in the Old Testament, only, the, only God gave life. And in the Old Testament, only God was the final judge. And Jesus is making now the case that he is the one who gives life, just like the Father. And he is the one who has been granted the authority to judge the world, just as the Father had, so it has been now committed to him. 
Throughout the Old Testament, as I said, Yahweh alone, God alone, Yahweh alone, had the power to give life. Listen to Deuteronomy 32. Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there anyone who can deliver from my hand. Or for Samuel 2.6, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he brings up. Or Psalm 68.20, our God is the God of salvation and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. God alone is the one who gives life. God alone is, is, the, is the one who has Lord, who is the Lord over life and death. And also, God was, uh, was declared in the Old Testament to be the only one who was the final and ultimate judge. Psalm 97, verse 7. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. And Psalm 98, for he is coming to judge the earth with righteousness. He shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. So Jesus is saying that the power of life and judgment has been conferred to him by the Father. Just, ima just imagine being the Sanhedrin, the religious cops, and understanding what this man is saying before you, what he's declaring himself to be. You see, this is not, this sounds like, Sometimes you can read this and it, it sounds kind of obscure, but just imagine you, uh, the Sanhedrin just dripping in the Old Testament, in the knowledge of who Yahweh is. And this man is standing before them saying, I can do anything God does. Because, because the Father, your God, has conferred to me the authority and the power to do all the things that he does. This would not go over well. This is not going to go over well. Right? But, but Jesus is clearly des describing who he is. And then he says, to cap it all off, look at verse 23. And here's why God has done all these things. Verse 23, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Swallow that one. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Equal honor is to be given to the persons of the Trinity, we learn here. And we are warned that specifically to give honor to the Father only and not to the Son as well is to not give honor at all to God. He, Jesus was saying to a Jew who, who would honor the Father, who would honor God the Father, if you will not honor the Son, then you are not honoring the Father. If you will not honor the Son, then you are not honoring the Father. And, and we should see this too as well. We should see this today in our own lives. We should see this today in the way a public declaration of any honor to God is given. We are to render to honor to God and, the, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Rendering honor to a generic God while avoiding naming Jesus is dishonoring to the Father. Now, not, there's not magic words. It's not like every single time you have to say God and Jesus. I'm not saying that. But to render, to render to some kind of generic God some kind of honor and purposefully avoiding naming Jesus in that honor is dishonoring the Father. You are dishonoring God. If you're afraid to use the word Jesus in giving honor to God, you are dishonoring the God you are seeking to honor. That's what, that's what we need to understand. This, all, of, all authority and all power has been granted to Jesus, and we are to render to him full and complete honor and obedience 
and worship, just as we would to God. Okay, so we now come to the center here. In the center here, verse 24 and 25, talks of one of two resurrections. There are two resurrections spoken of in the scriptures. There's the spiritual resurrection, and then there is the final bodily resurrection at the end of this age. And Jesus refers here now, as as he's making this argument, to this first resurrection. Verse 24 and 25. Let me read them to you again, first of all. 24 and 25. Most assuredly, or amen, amen, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Amen, amen, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. This is the center of Jesus' argument and he solemnizes again these statements again with his amen, amen. In verse 21, he had said, even so the Son Son gives life to whom he will. Well, how does he do that? He tells us in verse 24. He says, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. And in verse 25, he says, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And again, in verse 25, but he's not here. He's not talking about the final resurrection because we see in verse 24, he who hears has everlasting life. And verse 25, the hour is coming and now is. So he's referring to a resurrection, a life that exists now, he says. You hear my word now, you have this life. He who hears and believes in this word, hears the voice of Jesus. And he who hears the voice of Jesus in this way is brought to life because I have been granted that kind of life to give. It's interesting if you think about this. Salvation, salvation comes through the ears. Salvation comes through the ears, through hearing the voice of Christ. One who hears the voice of Christ in the preaching of the gospel tastes resurrection life. Um, The the, uh, standard reformed um, idea of the preacher in the pulpit is that he is no pope. He is not infallible. He is not God. At the same time, having, having hands laid on him in ordination, the people are to understand that when the preacher gets into the pulpit and speaks the word of God, you are, with one eye to the text, to hear the voice of Christ. You are to be dealt with by Jesus Christ in the preaching of the word. And that should change the way sermons are prepared, men are ordained, and congregations listen and prepare to hear. It should change the way that we think about this service. It should change the way that you think about how you enter into the, the proclamation of the gospel and the exposition of the scriptures by, um, by the preacher. Because you are to hear the voice of Christ. It, it says, so one, who, one who hears the voice of Christ tastes resurrection life. He has, it says, passed from death to life there in 24. He is passed from death to life. Not like you're going to pass from death to life one day, which you will, but you already have if you hear the voice of Christ this way. Or as Paul writes in Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. This has already happened to you. This has already happened to us who are in Jesus Christ who have heard his voice. 
This is what Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, and you who he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Or in verses 4 and 5, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And, and this is what we experience by means of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit in us. This is why Jesus, or Paul wrote, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The experience of the Christian is death to himself and life now in Christ, an ability to live before God as, and to do so by faith as Christ lives in me. And what does he, what does he receive? How does he see this? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, Paul writes, there's no law. It just comes by the work of the Spirit. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, he says, let us also walk in the Spirit. If you have life in the Spirit, you can walk in this Spirit because you have passed from death to life. That's what Jesus is proclaiming. That's what pro- proclaiming, and that's what Paul lays out and, and describes and, and fleshes out for the Christian in his life. And it was Paul who wrote also in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Joey's, you know, ever wonder about that, that phrase? Faith comes by hearing. Well, that, that makes sense. I would have to hear. And hearing by the word of God. I, I might expect him to say in hearing by, I don't know, the gift of God or something. But the Word of God, first of all, is Jesus, and the Word of God is the Word proclaimed. The Word of God proclaimed gives ears that cannot hear the ability to hear. How do spiritually deaf people come to hear? By the Word of God, by the proclamation of the gospel. We proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And God takes that word by his spirit and he unstops, stopped ears. And all of a sudden, one can hear and one hears and finds faith. Finds that God has granted them faith to believe in what they have heard. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Jesus begins to help unpack a little bit more of this authority then and ability that he has in verses 26 and 27. These verses explain how it is that the Son can bring forth resurrection life and how he can declare divine judgment. It is because, he says, that the Father has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment. He says the Father has life in himself and so does the Son have life in himself. This phrase, first of all, means that the Son, just as the Father, is self-existent. You and I do not have life in ourselves. We have life mediated to us. But God is self-existent. The only, we, only, we only exist because God has done something. We have life because God has done something. We have life in Christ because God has done something. But God himself has life in himself. He's self-existent. Not, not dependent upon anything else in order to have life. And what, what is declared is that Jesus is the same. He also is self-existent. Self has life in himself. Now, the Jews already believed that this about God, and Jesus is, again, stamping on, their, stamping on their toes and saying that he has this life in himself as well. 
This is part of the Nicene Creed that we recite, where we say that of Jesus, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. That's from the Latin word, which literally means existence. Being of one existence of, of the Father. Sometimes it could be also uh, translated essence. Um, it's translated substance, but he's not talking about stuff, um, like, like we might think of stuff, but existence. The very existence of God, and the Father and the Son, are the same. They are one. There's always been then a granting, an eternal granting of life by the Father to the Son. For we have been told of the word that was with God in the beginning, that in him was life. Chapter 1, verse 4, that prologue. So chapter 1, verse 4, in him was life, is like a table of contents. And now Jesus is talking about this, bringing this all, all that that means um, out in these verses. Also, 1 John 1, 2, the life was manifested... And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father when it's manifested to us. So he's not talking that Jesus, the man, was granted life. He's talking about an eternal life that Jesus always had, granted to him by the Father, given to him by the Father eternally, that makes them exactly the same in their, in their existence. Theologians refer to this as the eternal generation of the Son. He's always had life and power. And Jesus says, you think that's something? I got even more for you. He says in verse 28, do not marvel at this. That's, I got far more. I got far more to tell you. He says, um, for, he begins to talk then about another final resurrection where there will be his voice that will be heard again. Right now the gospel is preached and some ears are not open. Right now, the gospel is proclaimed and some hearts remain dead. Some spirit remain dead. But Jesus says there will come a day where he will speak and his voice will raise everyone. Everybody will come forth from the grave. Jesus, the man, is standing, a man, standing before the Sanhedrin. And he's saying, I have power to give life just as God does. Not only that. I have power by my voice that one day I will speak and my voice will raise all of the dead, all of the bodies from all of the graves will come forth, each and every one. All will be resurrected, each and every one. Everyone will stand before his judgment, but those who had heard his voice in the first resurrection will find that they will not come into judgment. There will be this glorious resurrection, this fearful, awesome resurrection of all the dead out of the graves and if you are in Christ now you will find you already passed through the judgment there's, there's no judgment you will see the the great judge and there will be no judgment upon you leading to any condemnation because all of that all of that judgment has already taken place on the cross you are fully and completely forgiven fully and completely made new that it has already been declared of you not guilty not guilty all, they have to, all, they, all you will have to offer is what they have done good, it says here. Which rattles us sometimes. What are you talking about? We're going to have our works now judged? Is this salvation by works? No. No, if you, if you watch the passage, here's what's going on. You will be brought in, and in your glorification, in your gl final glorification, all of your good works are going to be displayed. <laughs> what good works? My imperfect good works? Yes. Which, of course will now be shown perfectly, 
shown to be the good works of God that he had done through you. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Oh great, my imperfect good works and the ones that I didn't do and everything that I did wrong are going to be displayed for everyone to see. Oh, that's going to be wonderful. Glory, glory. No. In the final consummation of all things... Every cup of water that you gave in the name of Jesus is going to be like a Super Bowl victory. God is going to show forth how he used your imperfect life, your imperfect words, your imperfect motives, your imperfect actions, and accomplish his perfect good work in you. You couldn't stop God's good works. Try as you might, you could not stop God's good works that he did through you. And he's going to show you how he used them all. How he used everything about you for his glory. And his glory will be revealed. And for all your good works, it, it, it's, what, what is this like? So this is, an, this, is a, this is an eternal version of giving good works, uh, of giving thanks to God for the good works that he has done in me. You, you know, you're gonna, you see this when the, uh, you see this when the young man receives the Heisman Trophy, and he gets up and he says, "The first thing I need to do is give thanks to God," right? And everybody goes, "Yeah, that's really nice. He's a Christian. That's really nice. That's nothing compared to what is going to be revealed." What did that? What did that football player mean? He meant he's, he wants to give glory to God for the for his abilities and strengths. Um, a guy a guy gets a touchdown now, and he you know he goes like this. Right? Thank God. Thanks, God. And he's, and he's giving glory to God because he knows that he wouldn't have been able to do that without God. Magnify that infinitely. And everything you've ever done, you are going to see how God was at work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. You're, you're going to find out in eternity all that God did through you. You. Pathetic, little, wavering, compromising you could not stop the glory of God being worked out. Because everything works for those who love God. All things work together for good and for his glory. He has control. He has that kind of authority. He has that kind of a power working through you. What should that do for you right now? The first thing that ought to do for you right now is you ought to just breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, thank God. Thank God I haven't screwed up this place. Right? Because how many different times have you screwed up this place? Your relationships, your work, your stuff, your standing against... How many times? And in, you're going to hear two things. No condemnation, which you already hear. And you're going to hear, welcome and come into the glory. And see what we did, the body of Christ, over the course of history... To bring full and complete glory to God the Father and His Son. It, it's, this, this is what we're being told. This is what Jesus is declaring. So, look at this as your good works fully glorified in the resurrection in such a way as to magnify the glory of Jesus and His perfect work in you. No glory to me. And yet all glory poured out upon you in Christ. You'll share in that glory. You will delight in that glory. And that glory will be communion glory with the Son 
and with the Father. Communion glory with the Son and with the Father. But to the rest, to everyone else, no matter how much they have, been dis- they have dismissed his voice in the past, no matter how many times they've said this to the gospel, nah, 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 no matter how much, they will hear the voice of the Son of God and it, will, and it will be displayed in full, his glory before them. Revelation 20, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. The dead will be judged according to their works, but you will be declared to be alive in Jesus Christ. And in this, the glory, the glory of God's vindicating wrath over sin will be in full display as well. Romans 9.22, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Flee to the cross now, for you will come before the judge one day. Flee to that judge now, who in his judgment takes your sins upon himself and buries it all buries all of the wrath of God, all of the holy and righteous judgment for all your sin. Let him bury it in his full and complete judgment now at the cross, and you will never hear from him about it again. Never. Never. This is the glory of Jesus Christ. Our society, our world, has displayed in these last couple of years that they hear the voice of death and they're afraid. The world is afraid of death. It's all over us right now. We might think that we need to teach them not to fear death, but I would argue that instead maybe we need to teach them to fear death far more, for they are only afraid of the first death, a cessation of living here. That's nothing. Do not marvel, Jesus says. We ought to fear the second death, which swallows up the first death. Do not fear those who can only kill the body, Jesus says, but fear this one, the one who after he has killed the body can also send the soul to hell. Fear him who has the power to cast into hell. That is the fear that our nation needs. But if God grants us hearing and we hear the word of Christ, then we have nothing to fear. Nothing. Only glory to behold. John would write in his epistle these words, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has the hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. These are the words of the one who is the word of God, whose voice brings life to the dead, and at whose name every knee shall bow. His name is Jesus, the Son of God. Hear him and come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Gracious Father, let each one hear the voice of your Son, 
even Jesus Christ our Lord. Grant hearing by your word and faith by hearing. Raise the dead, unstop the ears, grant new hearts, both here and throughout our city, our state, this nation. Do so to the glory of your Son, in whose glory we will live forever and ever, world without end. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.